Hello, my name is Maya Contreras, and welcome to another episode of Obscene Podcast. Today, I'm going to be interviewing Shayna Harrison. Shayna was recently featured in The New Yorker in an article entitled Fighting America's Gun Plague. And I'm just going to read the opening of that article so you can get to know Shayna just a bit. At 8.15 on a pre-pandemic Friday morning, Shayna Harrison arrived at the Bronx Academy of Health Careers, one of seven specialized high schools in the massive Vander Childs Educational Campus Building in a northern part of the borough. She had come from Red Hook in Brooklyn, where she lives, to teach a weekly four-credit class on gun violence and how to prevent it. New Yorkers Against Gun Violence, or NYAGV, the nonprofit organization of which she is one of three full-time employees, has been sending her to teach in New York City high schools for nine years since she was in her mid-twenties. She's almost six feet tall. And she wears false eyelashes, bright red lipstick, and striking clothes. On this day, a red fleece coat, a bold black and white checkered blouse, wide-legged trousers, and square eyeglasses with pink and black frames. Her black, wavy, long hair goes just below her shoulders. And as you can hear from that small description, she is formidable in person and what she does and contributes to our community. Here is my interview with her now. My name is Shana Harrison. I am the Education Director at New Yorkers Against Gun Violence. And what drew you to your occupation? Honestly, I think I had no idea that I would be doing what I'm doing now. I think as a young person, I never grew up wanting to, like, end gun violence. I don't think anybody does as a young person. You know, I think, um, unfortunately, because of my own um, lived experiences, um, I, I knew that it was something that I had to do in order to be able to feel safe. Um, And, you know, I've lost a lot of people to gun violence, whether they have been quote unquote, the perpetrators or victims to gun violence. And I really felt like I needed to do something, especially in my own spaces to have these conversations around gun violence and powerlessness and the need to, you know, feel powerful by picking up a gun. So it sounds like your advocacy began very young. Were you kind of putting some of these ideas together as a child? You started kind of seeing how it was affecting you and community around you? Yeah, I guess. I mean, um, I think about, you know, when my advocacy kind of like started, I think I've been advocating for myself since I was in middle school, like growing up Um, in a home with a loving mother who struggles with, you know, drug addiction. She hasn't always been available, nor did she have the capacity to be most days. So I found myself, like, advocating for, you know, things as a very young, like, you know, very young. And I didn't know it was advocacy at that point. I didn't know that that's what I was doing. Um, But I had to show up for myself very often. And because of that, I learned how to show up for other people. So I don't think like gun violence was in my mind as a young person, but definitely um, safe spaces, um, equitable spaces, um, you know, and just spaces that allowed me to use my voice um, was on my mind as a young person. 
When did you first get involved with New Yorkers Against Gun Violence and, and how did New Yorkers Against Gun Violence get started? Thank you. Absolutely. Um, so prior to working for New Yorkers Against Gun Violence, I worked for a nonprofit organization called the Crown Heights Mediation Center. Um, and the Crown Heights Mediation Center was around for a very long time. Um, it's in Crown Heights and it came about... Um, to kind of like com- combat the riots that was happening between the Caribbean community and the Hasidic Jew community. Um, and I pretty much learned how to be a mediator in that space and was like um, doing like youth mediations in different high schools um, around the city. And, you know, they asked me to, you know, join this this gun violence prevention workshop, I guess. And, you know, they wanted to talk to young people about why young people picked up guns and to think about some recommendations that we can actually make to elected officials about how to reduce gun violence. And to be completely honest with you, I was like, what? I don't want to do that. (laughs) Like, I want to do what I'm doing. I have like, I just don't want to do that. Um, But because it was my job, I did. And um, I ended up, you know, being introduced to NYAGV And it was such an amazing experience because it was the first time I think um, I've ever seen young people be like amplified that way. Right. We were in a space where our voices mattered. We were experts on the issue that disproportionately affected us. Um, You know, people asked us questions. We gave recommendations to other folks. So, you know, other folks who were, you know, had very high positions in government, right? We're looking at us for answers. And I've never felt like that before. I never felt um, um, validated in my lived experiences. I never felt like my um, lived experiences mattered. I never felt that my community mattered um, in a lot of those spaces. So I had to, I, I literally, you know, said to myself, like, how can I continue to be involved in this space? And how can I bring other young folks like myself with me? Um, so that, I guess, you know, I worked for Crimes Mediation Center doing that work. And then I was contacted by New Yorkers Against Gun Violence to start working with that organization to kind of like create a curriculum that works with your other young folks um, and teaching gun violence prevention in schools um, in Brooklyn. So it, it, it was, it worked really well. I was really excited, but I definitely, it was definitely the blind leading the blind. Um, but, um, I think because of it, it was so much honesty and transparency and, um, credibility and that space for other young people. Cause I was young too. And I was from the same communities. And I think we really created a space where young folks could be vulnerable and exposed and heal, if that makes sense. It does. So when New Yorkers uh, Against Gun Violence got started, did it not have a youth component at the beginning of it? Yes. No, it did not have a youth um, component um, in the beginning of it. So it literally started, um, it was a primary focus um, in New York State. Um, and also advocates for local and national levels of laws, policies, and practices that protect New York State residents. But it started, was established in 1993 um, by Brooklyn mothers who kind of like came together because of the senseless shooting death of a teacher in in Prospect Park. So it started um, in that space, and eventually um, it added on this education component. So what I always say, the great thing about New Yorkers Against Gun Violence is that it's one 
it's one of the organizations that understands the supply side of gun violence and the demand side of gun violence. And because of that, they work in both of those spaces, right? So they, we do all this amazing legislation work, all this amazing work um, in New York State around, you know, creating um, and, and supporting gun laws that can keep communities safe. But in the same token, we understand why young folks pick up guns in the first place. So we do work in those spaces too. And we make sure that I, both of both of those different kinds of things that we're doing, you kind of like, you know, um, meet in the middle so that I work, both sides of our organization support each other in its work. That makes a lot of sense. Um, thank you for telling me the history of the, of the organization. Um, there, so there has been an uptick in gun violence, mm-hmm. and it's discussed around the clock right now in New York One and in the mayoral race. And the past weekend, 18 people were shot. Around 505 people mm-hmm. were shot in New York City from January 1st through May 9th, according to the New York Times. Mm-hmm. It's the highest year-to-date number in a decade. Mm-hmm. Your website lists some very sobering statistics as well. 900 New Yorkers on average are killed by guns a year. Mm-hmm. 54% of gun deaths in New York are suicides. Uh, 1,531 shootings were recorded in 2020. An increase of 97% over 2019. Shootings rose by 110% in Albany, 97% in Buffalo, 74% in Syracuse, 69% in Rochester. 65% of gun homicides in New York State are black, but only 15% of the state's population are black. What I've personally seen missing in the conversation from the media and this election cycle is around causality. You know, what are some of the reasons for the uptick in violence? They discuss the violence, but they don't ever discuss the causes. And so I would like to know, as we, the public, can have better ways of framing these discussions around gun violence that are more constructive. Yes. No, thank you for that question. I, I, I hear it a lot. I mean, I think uptick has been like a buzzword um, for the past couple of months now. And unfortunately, I don't think people ever really address um, the question. Or if they do, it's always um, kind of like, addressed in a way that they can focus on their own personal agendas, right? So I think it's important for us to understand that the same communities that are being hit the hardest by the uptick in gun violence are the same communities that have been hit the hardest by COVID-19. We need to have real conversations here, right? The violence stems from a host of systematic issues in these communities, like unemployment, homelessness, inadequate housing, police violence, and the lack of safe spaces, to name a few, right? You know, gun violence is the end result. Folks are not just choosing to kill each other. When reporting current events, we need to frame it in a way that highlights the powerlessness many feel and the need for resources. And I don't think that's what we're doing, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, depending on if you want more policing, you will talk about the uptick in violence and, and say we need more policing. If you, mm-hmm. uh, like, you know what I mean? Like people use the uptick in violence to talk about or to kind of like denounce this idea that we need to reimagine what safety looks like. It's just unfortunate that we need to understand that, you know, homelessness and, you know, um, uh, unemployment already existed prior to COVID. But when COVID happened, you know, it shined a light on it and it also, you know, made it worse. So now these mm-hmm. same people who are struggling um, in the first place are struggling 10 times more now. Um, and then young people don't have safe spaces. They don't can't go to school. They can't go to the library. They can't hang out. They can't, they, you know what I mean? Like, so 
You have people who are living in NYCHA housing a lot of times, people who are living on top of each other, people who don't have um, space and, 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 um, and, 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 and like safe neighborhoods and safe uh, or healthy, um, you know, parks to play in, you know, on top of each other, violence will happen. You know what I mean? So I think that we need to have those conversations when talking about the uptick in gun violence um, more than more than ever now. I absolutely agree. Um, and speaking of resources, your website is an incredible resource. I saw that it had like a little bit of a a, a redo. Yeah, it, it looks really exciting. <laughs> it looks it really looks wonderful. And uh, I saw the advocacy pages were split. Uh, split policies between state and federal mm-hmm. level policies. And these are policies your organizations are currently or, um, advocating yeah. for. Yeah. Uh, can you tell us a few about a few of the policies? Of and I see that some of the, some of them have been enacted. Yeah. And um, what would you like to see enacted at the state and federal level? Thank you for that. You know, we have had a lot of state victories, right? Um, you know, with the Safe Act, and more recently, like you know, the Untraceable Firearm Act, Gun Dealers Liability, you know, Unfinished Receiver Act. So we have some really great wins. Um, New York State has really great gun laws, like we just do. Um, but like, why do we have so much gun violence? I hear that a lot. People, when we talk about, you know, um, gun violence in the way they say, well, you know, gun laws aren't going to work. Look, New York state has really good gun laws. You guys still have a lot of gun violence. The fact of the matter is our gun laws are not universal. So when we talk about this stuff, we have to talk about some of the federal things that need to happen in order to keep New York safe, right? You know, current federal law only requires federal licensed firearm dealers to conduct background checks. Universal background checks bill will like close major loopholes requiring background checks for all private sales or transfers, right? So like the fact of the matter is we don't have borders. So if we have good gun laws in New York, the majority of the crime guns that are found in New York City come from out of state, right? So like, you know, the, the, the guns are coming here. At the end of the day, every illegal gun was once legal. Like, it just was. So we need to be able to track and trace where these guns are coming from and hold these gun dealers accountable for the amount of crime guns that are found in our communities and the guns that, you know what I mean? We have to hold these people accountable for that, right? So we we, we really need to invest um, in an idea that we need to have universal background checks for everyone. Because just like you have a right to own a gun, I have a right to be safe. And I don't think that any law-abiding citizen, quote-unquote, or any law-abiding citizen who believes that they have a right to own a gun would think that people shouldn't have background checks. I think that most folks would agree. Like, 90% of the country actually wants background checks. So we need to start to ask the real questions as to why we don't have them and who benefits from us not having background checks. Um... Yeah. Oh, I, absolutely. And I'd like to see, you know, some different narratives coming out of Congress. Is there anything is there anything that you would like to see our legislators discuss on the state level or the federal level of how they should be talking about it? For example, you just said mm-hmm. that, you know, we have the right to be safe. Yeah. Uh, have you have you seen maybe that these conversations are not being framed strong enough uh, in Congress. Absolutely. I mean, out of fear, but I definitely think that the conversations aren't being framed um, in a way that they need to be, right? Gun violence is a public health issue. 
period. It should mm-hmm. be spoken about that way. And every and everyone should be speaking about gun violence as a public health issue, right? Um, more people mm-hmm. are dying in this country from suicides by gun than they are from homicides. So that alone tells you this is a public health issue. We need to be rallying everyone around um, this epidemic, right? We need to start mm-hmm. framing it the same way we, we talked about cigarettes, the same way we talked about automobiles. We need to be having these conversations. The fact of the matter is, look, we already know that we have a right to own a gun. It's I'm not... That's I think that that's the biggest misconception about our organization, that people think we're trying to take guns away. The Second mm-hmm. Amendment is the Second Amendment, but that... But that's at the same time, that your gun is not that right is not absolute, right? So we need to be doing things, right, that can keep people safe in addition to um also saying that, hey, yes, you are able to own a gun. But that right's not absolute. You can't own it anywhere, everywhere. You can't take it everywhere. You need to be able to pass background checks. You need to be able to lock it up and make sure that it's safe. All those things can coexist. So, you know, again, I really feel like we aren't having this conversation in a public health way. We're not taking a public health approach to this. And I think that because of that, we are doing ourselves a disservice um, over and over again because we see what happens when we talk about this stuff in the public in the public health way. We see how other folks who might not be affected by gun violence in the same way as folks who live in communities that are disproportionately affected, they can understand um, and, and take some ownership of this crisis when we talk about it in the public health way. Agree, um, 100%. Um, you have some wonderful programs um, at New Yorkers uh, Against Gun Violence, uh, from Reaction School Program, Miller Mentorship Program, Youth-Led Education. These are really strong, wonderful programs. I'd like to see these programs replicated more across the United States as well. Can you tell us a little bit about these programs and they were and the way they work in conjunction with the community here in New York. Absolutely. Um, the reaction program, well, that's my baby. Um, I've been um, working at New Yorkers Against Gun Violence for well over 12 years. And, um, you know, the like our reaction is like our signature program. It's a year-long curriculum that is delivered in New York City schools. You know, students come from black and brown communities most affected by gun violence. Um, and the curriculum covers like personal and group development and misconceptions about gun violence and policies and um, solutions to reducing gun violence. But some of the most important um, parts to me is like really understanding like, you know, toxic masculinity and powerlessness and, um, you know, some of those other really core root causes of gun violence that people kind of like, you know, don't necessarily see or or we really have real conversations around how race um, and gun ownership kind of relate and what that looks like in communities and accountability and things like that. So each year, um, our reaction students, you know, they bring their concerns directly to lawmakers. Typically, we go to like Albany or Washington, D.C., but because of, of COVID and having to meet virtually, we've been able to like set up spaces where young folks kind of like had an opportunity to speak um, directly with elected officials officials um, virtually. So we did a lot of like virtual meetings, um, which was really amazing. We had some elected officials like in their closets with their children running around and the young people had an opportunity to talk about what COVID has done to their communities and their families. And in addition to like gun violence and the act, um, you know, and the over access of guns, like a lot of our young folks talk a lot about 
easy access and how easy it is to actually get a gun. It's way harder for them to get a library card than it is for them to get a gun. gun. And people don't even understand that, right? Like how if we ask our young folks, do you know where to get a gun right now? They will raise their hand and say yes. We ask our young folks, have you ever lost somebody to gun violence? They will raise their hand and say yes. Like these things are so real to them. Um, It's very unfortunate, right? Um, so we have this, this reaction program that's working really, really well, um, especially during COVID-19. A, a lot of time, our program was the only program that was able to give young folks live instruction. Um, we had like live instructors who taught our virtual class remotely. Um, a lot of our young folks never saw their teacher, right? They were signing on, taking attendance and like, you know, filling out some paperwork and like doing assignments that way. Um, so, you know, this was like the first space where... Um, our young folks been were able to like meet, um, you know, in front of a teacher and have these really, you know, robust and interesting conversations, especially with so much police violence happening in New York City. A lot of our young folks, they needed a place to turn. They needed to, a place to ask really hard questions and to kind of like talk about their feelings and talk about their trauma and talk about their communities in a way that's really, you know, um, constructive, um, and gives them an opportunity to do something, um, about what they're feeling and what's happening in their communities. Oh, absolutely. Agree. And, um, yeah, thank you for putting these programs together again. I really would like to see these replicated. I know that there are so many communities that need these type of yeah, programs. Uh, so yes, thank you. Um, so early voting has begun for the mayoral race. This has been a strange election season. Um, The next, uh, this time next week will be the conclusion of that election. What would you like to see out of the next mayor and city council to be seated? What would you like them to understand about gun violence? Absolutely. Thank you for that question. I mean, I've been asking myself that for the past couple of weeks, right? Just figuring out who I'm going to be voting for. And, um, you know, I think that we are, at a place where we really have to reimagine what safety looks like um, and really addressing the root, the root causes and the importance of investing, sorry, like reimagining what safety and um, root causes looks like and then thinking about the importance of investing in initiatives other than the police department. And that's just honest, right? Um, and that doesn't mean you don't invest in the police department. That doesn't mean that the police department isn't a part of this idea of, of a safe community, but there needs to be more than just that. And right now, um, I don't I don't know if folks understand, you know, what that looks like. Right. There are programs out there like ours, like New Yorkers Against Gun Violence, who goes into, you know, goes into these schools and are teaching gun violence prevention. They are credible messengers like the, the crisis management system that actually has, you know, folks on the ground in communities taking guns out of people's hands. Right. That we need to be investing with our dollars and also with amplifying their voice. And and their work on television in every space about you know how important this work is in com- combating the violence in our community. So I need for me, um, you know, an ideal um, um, mayoral candidate would be a person who understands the important 
importance of investing in solutions that are actually working um, to reducing gun violence. Understanding that when you someone is having a mental health episode, that there should be other folks that that can be called other than the police, right? Under like you know, and not just saying it out loud, but actually creating initiatives that that can occur. Right. Because it's easy yeah. to say, oh, we need this and we need that. But like, what are what where are we going to where are we pulling the money from and where are we going to put the money in order to do that? Right. I would love, you know, uh, 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 you know, the candidate to say, hey, we need to have real gun violence prevention. We need to be looking at the gun violence prevention um, epidemic as a public health issue. We're going to put some money into, um, you know, organizations to, to be able to like teach gun violence prevention in, in every single high school around the city. Right now, mm-hmm. our reaction program is a four credit program. So we've been able to write this curriculum in a way that the board of ed has said, okay, great. This is amazing. Um, you know, we, we, we've been working side by side with like law teachers and health teachers to teach us as a public health issue and history teachers to roll out our curriculum. So our students who take, who are part of the reaction program also get credit for this program. It would be amazing for, um, you know, the mayor's office to say, hey, we're going to set aside some money so that these these nonprofit organizations can continue to do this work, right? So for mm-hmm. me, that's what it would look like, um, really just investing in solutions that keep communities safe. I agree. And there is money to do that because yes. uh, police every year um, have to settle millions of dollars mm-hmm. of settlements. Uh, for police violence action. And we could use that money instead to invest in nonprofits like yours. And I I would like to see that. So uh, there are dollars to move around. And I I agree, I'd like to see that. Um, So there is also, in addition to a mayoral race, um, well, actually, let me ask you this Mm -hmm. first, because um, you did mention the NYPD. So I want to just drill down on that a little bit more. How would you like to see that relationship with with the NYPD, the new mayor? You mentioned that, you know, obviously New York is not going to get rid of the NYPD, but at the same time, there needs to be better communication. I mean, our last mayor seemed to almost befriend the uh, the union mm-hmm. of the police. And um, so I personally would like to see something a little bit more of a strict, you know, kind of relationship and how this works, not a buddy, buddy one. Yeah. Um, you know, what would you like to see? Um, you know, because the NYPD does have its own gun violence issue. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I agree with you. You know, I definitely think the relationship was buddy, buddy, but for, I mean, I don't know. I think like, um, I'm just like, I think my personally, my Shana Harrison, and I also know as my organization, New Yorkers Against Gun Violence, understands that we need to hold the police department accountable for what they do. Um, and every step of the way, they need to be held accountable, right? So that needs to happen. But in addition to holding folks accountable, we also need to understand that you cannot ask people, police officers who are not trained to do certain things to do those things, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it it's not fair. Like we're like, you know what I mean? Like we are mm-hmm. asking folks to uh, you know, um 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 you know step in and kind of like um de-escalate situations that they aren't necessarily trained to do. But right. in the same token, we're asking regular uh civilians to de- de- to de-escalate their interactions with police. Like and then mm-hmm. we're not trained to de-escalate my my I'm not trained to de-escalate my interaction with police either. 
Absolutely. It's just like, yeah. it's just like these, these two things are happening. And at the end of the day, people are dying because of them. Um, so mm-hmm. for me, it really, I mean, I think police officers should be, or the police department should be advocating for the same things that folks from nonprofit organizations, for community-based organizations are advocating for as well. Everyone should be asking for more resources to keep the community safe. And, and I think the police department should say, hey, we are not trained to do that. Hey, we shouldn't be doing these things. We need to be putting in some money to, 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 to other folks who are trained to do that. The police officers right. should be doing that. And I think if they stood up and actually, um, you know, talked about how helpful organizations like the crisis management system um, has been to the police department, then that could change, you know, just the way I think a lot of folks in these communities see the police, right? If they stood mm-hmm. up and say, hey, we need more gun violence prevention organizations in the schools that can change the way um the community actually saw the police department so they need to be rallying and advocating for the same stuff that we're rallying and advocating um for like personally so that's what i would um like to see um from the police department to take uh, accountability and also like not necessarily always thinking about like um you know intervention but also preventative things that we can do to, to, you know, to reduce violence. Like, for example, I I mean, as a young person, I think this is the one of the first times ever that I really thought about policing in a different way. I remember as a young person, again, I told you, um, you know, I come from a home where my mom had a, a, a you know, an, an addiction, a, a substance abuse addiction. And mm-hmm. I didn't have much money all the time. And I remember, you know, not having a Metro card and having to like hop, cause I lost my my school Metro card and like having to like hop the train or something. And I lived really fairly close to my school. So I would get half in Metro cards and I didn't always have the additional money to pay to get on the bus or whatever, or the train. And, um, I walked in, I, I, you know, I looked around and this particular, at this time, this particular toll booth didn't have a person at, in the, in the, in the toll booth space and I didn't see any police officer. Um, and I, I'm going to be honest at that, at the age that I was, I, you know, I, I would have asked if I could get on the train because I really didn't feel like it was my fault. Like I didn't have the money yeah. and I was going to school. So I would have, of course. but I didn't see a police officer at, in, in that space. So I couldn't ask. Um, so I actually like, went under the turnstile and that's when the police kind of like jumped from behind the wall and was like, Hey, what are you doing? And in my mind, I'm like, Hey, well, what is the point? Like, what, what, what's your mm-hmm. job? Like, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to keep me safe? Or are you trying to catch me committing a crime? Because if, right. you, if you were there front and center, then I might, I would have asked you, could I, you know, get on the train? But mm-hmm. I felt like at, at that point, I was, I really started to think about what safety looked like. Um, I don't know. I don't think I knew that's what I was doing as a young person, as a young person. But that mm-hmm. kind of like um, interaction really stayed with me because I was just like, wait, this is this is this is not con- constructive at all. Like, you know what I mean? Right. And, yeah. So I think that that's really what a lot of folks are dealing with in our communities. Like the, like they're hiding behind these doors to like catch instead of like doing like the real work that kind of like prevents things from happening. So I don't have all the answers. I know there is probably way more that I could have said, but honestly, as an educator, I would like to see them advocate for some of these preventable, uh, preventive actions that can be helpful in order for them to do their jobs. 
Agreed. And one way of doing that, too, is electing a DA Uh that understands Uh that um, a child, a kid, anybody jumping a turnstile is usually because they don't have the money to do it. And so um, finding them doesn't help if you don't have money, uh, if you don't have a couple dollars, and how are you going to pay the 40 or $50 or $100 fine? <laughs> Makes no sense. And so uh, so now we have you know some DAs that are running. We're going to have a new district attorney. And um, for, for listeners who may not know, by the way, New York carries a mandatory jail time for illegal possession of a gun. But DAs have a discretion uh, when it comes to pursuing charges. Mm-hmm. Um, so our current district attorney, Cy Vance, uh, his office has disproportionately harmed black and brown communities mm-hmm. through mass criminalization mm-hmm. and incarceration. According to New York Magazine, Vance's office was responsible for almost 38% of uh, the city jail population mm-hmm. in 2016, even though it just handled 29% of all criminal cases in New York. What would you like to see from the new DA when it comes to how we handle Possession of um, gun violence or possessions of guns or gun violence. Yeah. Hmm. That's a really good question. Um, you know, honestly, a real understanding of mass incarceration and recidivism, right? Because mm-hmm. we got to understand that, you know, we're creating, um, like, we have to be, cre- you know, they have to be creating policing and running a, a DA office with restorative justice approach in mind, right? Mm-hmm. Understanding the root causes um, and, and, and the heavy jail time isn't a deterrent in most cases right. for folks um, to pick up a gun. Like, it just isn't. Especially when you're talking about communities of folks who feel powerless, communities of folks where they feel like this is the only way that they can actually get the things that they need to get in order for their uh, you know, families to survive. Um, so, like, they are constantly thinking about life or death situations. And that's why they're making a lot of decisions that they're making. So, you know, putting these mandatory or like these, these heavy sentences doesn't deter anything. Right. What it Mm -hmm. actually does is that it gets these young, you know, young people in in the prison system, um, you know, and and messes up their, you know, their, their record and their history. And then you see them going back and forth and back and forth into prison because, when you have a gun charge, it's harder to get a job. It's harder to live in nature housing where a lot of times that's where folks with that, you know, that you live with live. Um, so now you're homeless or you're, you know, you're, you're dealing with that. So there's so much that happens once a person um, actually picks up a gun and pulls a trigger. And that doesn't take away personal responsibility because I think a lot mm-hmm. of people hear this and they say, well, you, still, you had a choice. You didn't have to do that. And I agree. People have choices. People have uh, a responsibility to make better choices. But I think that people forget um, that the what they're picking from. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Right? It's easy to pick to go to school and 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 just really focus on your future when you have food to eat, when you have a safe place to sleep, and you know what I mean. Like like that's easy to do. It's harder mm-hmm. to do those things when all the other things around you aren't working correctly, right? Doesn't mean that mm-hmm. you shouldn't make that choice, but let's just be honest about how hard it is to make that choice, right? So I think the next DA or, you know what I mean, needs to understand the root causes of what gets folks in the positions that they're in and create initiatives that kind of combat those root causes because once you start doing that, then you'll start to see less folks picking up guns, right? We, mm-hmm. we see more young people committing crimes, um, whatever those crimes look like. Look, summer youth ended last, you know, during the, the pandemic, right? Mm-hmm. We see so many young people who are not who are not employed right now. 
Mm-hmm. What do you expect them to do? Bills are still the same. They still need to eat. Mm-hmm. They still need to have mm-hmm. clothes. They still those things don't end, right? So, like, we really need to understand why folks are doing the things that they're doing. The DA's office needs to be creating more jobs. The DA's office mm-hmm. needs to be talking about um um you know affordable housing. Like that's the kind of DA that we need. Uh, mm-hmm. like you know what I mean? Like, because all of those mm-hmm. things relate. They you know what I mean? And, and we need folks in office that understand. By working on one thing looks like, you know, looks like this too, right? Like even as a gun, even working for gun violence prevention, you know, our curriculum looks like that. We're talking about redlining. We're talking about um, 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 homelessness. We're, we're talking about toxic masculinity. We're talking about um, um, healthy relationships. Why? Why are we talking about all these things when we're a gun violence prevention organization? Because we understand that young folks pick up the gun at the end. And if we're not Ooh. dealing with all the rest of that stuff, then it doesn't make any sense to be talking about the gun. Like, you, you just right. doesn't. So that's what I would want to see in the DA. I love that. And um, I was happy to see that a lot of the DA discussions, not all of them, but a few of them yeah. really were talking about restorative and transformative justice. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was thrilled to, that they understood how interconnected these causalities are, you know, I mean, there's a study that says $15 an hour for people to get the minimum wage raised $15 an hour would uh, cut down on child abuse yes. because of the amount of stress that people Absolutely. feel when they don't, when they cannot make ends meet. Absolutely. So I, I'm with you. I hope that the new DA gets it. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that gets lost in the discussion of gun violence is long-term trauma um, mm-hmm. for the, for the survivors of it. Uh, the grief, the grief for survivors of it. Um, Nelba Marquez uh, Green lost her daughter to a mass shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary mm-hmm. School in um, Newtown, Connecticut, in 2014. And, and every day she updates her Twitter bio to mark the days that she's been without physical presence mm-hmm. of her daughter, mm-hmm. saying, "You know, we've survived 3,103 days." It's clear that there are so many families carrying this tremendous mm-hmm. grief, and it's made worse with little action done at the federal level. And I, I want to, you know, I asked about narratives that, you know, people in Congress should be creating, but as the public, what kind of narratives should we be discussing? You know, you mentioned public health, which I think is perfect. Um, but how, how can we better message on getting um, anti-gun violence legislation passed? How can we help promote that? I think, you know, when I think about trauma and especially working in the communities that I serve, I understand that the young folks that I'm working with don't un- they don't have post-traumatic stress disorder, right? They Nothing is post with them. They're living through this every single day. Um, they lose folks um, so much that they don't even know that it's traumatizing, right? A lot of times this stuff just seems like it's normal and it's like what just happens um, in their community. What I would like folks to understand is that we're talking about real people. We're talking about mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers here. Um, and I know that we can have rights and we can also be safe. And I need for folks to understand that we can have both of those conversations at the same time. The fact of the matter is America cannot afford gun violence. Like we just can't, right? I remember reading in a news article um, right at the beginning of COVID, um, when COVID-19 hit, it, it, it literally said, please stop shooting. We do not have any more beds, right? Like the hospitals were packed 
were folks who had COVID. They couldn't even assess, like, you know, you know the people who were coming in, the shooting, the shooting victims who were coming in, right? At a moment where every dollar counts, our federal, state, and local governments are spending a combined average of $34 million each day to deal with the aftermath of gun violence across the country. Like the total annual bill for taxpayers, survivors, families, employers, you know, and communities is $280 billion, right? We're spending so much money on gun violence um, when we could be taking that money and actually putting it into resources that can keep our community safe. So I think for me, I, I really would want people to understand what the real impact is um, when it comes to gun violence in this country. And also think about this idea of protection. If we have so, more than half of the people who are dying from gun violence are dying from suicide, it really questions this idea of whether or not guns protect you, right? You're 22 times more likely to be killed someone you love or yourself when you have um, a gun in your home, right? You know, like th these are real statistics. These are real facts. These are real people. We are losing so much, um, when it comes to, you know, gun violence, and we really need to have that conversation. How much is this actually costing us? Absolutely. So there's like, there's a mental toll, an emotional toll, a financial toll. And I think that's, I think that's great framing for how the, the public can discuss it. You were recently featured in an article for the New Yorker where you stated that you wanted to create brave and safe spaces for kids. And you said something really mm -hmm. beautiful. You said, I'll always receive what you give and hear it and give you something back. I want to hear what you're saying. Your voice is more important to me than mine. What do you want teenagers to get from that? And, and what are some of the positive outcomes you've seen personally from your work with younger folks around the subject of gun violence? Absolutely. The fact of the matter is that, is that you know, unfortunately, young people are disproportionately affected by gun violence. They are at the forefront of what's happening. And because of that, they need to be at the forefront of this movement. They can reimagine what safety looks like. They're young enough. Like, I, I was reading something maybe a couple of weeks ago, just thinking about, like, if this generation, like, this generation just uh, reimagine what safety looked like, Reimagine what equity looks like. Reimagine, reimagine with um, what racism looks like, you know, and and just changed it. It'll be over. You know what I mean? I think you know every great movement was youth led. Every single every great movement in this world was youth led. Young people have so much power. So for me, it's really about creating spaces where young people can use their voices to change things. Um, they see this world in a way that's way different than the folks before them. Um, even in this gun violence conversation that we're currently having, young folks have driven um, the conversation and made sure that it was inclusive. You know, we had Sandy Hook, we had um, so many horrible and terrible events of mass shootings occur. But I don't think that people were having a conversation that included black and brown folks in a real way until young folks said, hey, it's happening in our communities as well, but you guys are just calling it gun violence. Young folks stood up and said, you will not leave our, our communities out of this fight, out of this conversation. 
we have been working on this forever. And because of young folks um, saying that, we have people from all over the country on diff- different sides of the aisle step up and say, hey, gun violence is an, it's an, uh, a universal issue. It's an American problem. And we're all going to stand up together and we're going to do something about it. So for me, I just understand the importance of young folks' voices. I understand the importance of having, you know, uh, of creating spaces where young people, when things are youth-led, um, and the difference um, that occurs when you amplify the voices of young people. I can give you guys tons of examples of when I've seen, you know, that happen. I mean, like I told you before, I've lost folks to, I lost students to gun violence to a point where I just felt like, why am I even doing this? Is this even, does this even matter? And I had to have the young people in my classroom stand up and say, Ms. Harrison, like, we got this. Like, I know you're tired, I know you're angry, and I know you don't even believe what you're saying right now in this moment, but we got this, and we do. And they re-energized me to continue to do this work. I watched them stand in front of the National Rifle Association and say, we are experts on this issue because we lived it. I've watched them lobby their elected officials and say, we need these things in our community. We need, you know, uh, more resources in our community. I've watched them um, stand up and, 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 and I've been so grateful to be able to pass the baton to other young people to continue to do this work. Well, thank you for that. And, and uh, speaking of which, I want to know how we, as the public here in New York and people across the United States who listen to this, how can we support your organization and your mission? Um, for uh, New Yorkers against gun violence? I, you know, I think the biggest advocates that we could ever ask for are, again, young folks and parents, right? I think, you know, and, and the schools that you're working or the schools that your, stu- your, young, your young people are in, you can ask questions like, do we have gun violence prevention um, 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 resources at the school? Would we be able to get a, a gun violence organization in the school to roll out some of the education work that's needed, right? Parents are our biggest advocates. They are the, they are the way um, for us to get into these schools, right? Our organization is pretty much funded by individual donations. So, you know, we are very small. We are mighty, but we are small. We, you know, we do this work with a very small staff. So every single donation really goes directly to our programming because of you folks are the reason why we are able to continue to do this work, right? Lobbying your elected officials and asking them to, or telling them and demanding them to put their discretionary funds and their resources to organizations like ours um, who are on the ground, who are in the community, who are doing gun violence prevention work, calling your elected officials and asking them to pass sensible gun laws, right? Um, um, whether it's federal gun laws that close the, the, you know, the, the gun, you know, the gun show loophole, or it's state laws that could, you know, re- require more funding to go into the organizations like ours. So it's really just about understanding who your elected officials are, um, really addressing or, or taking, um, taking stock in the organizations that are actually doing that work and advocating for them, advocating for the importance of having organizations like ours in your community doing this work. Well, thank you so much for that. I, I so appreciate your work, um, and the value that, you add to our community in New York City. The work is critical. I know that it's exhausting, and that's why I want people to um, 
recognize that and recognize that um, we all need to take time to support organizations like yours financially to folks. Uh, <laughs> organizations that do this stuff, they, they need money. They need money to do this. So I, I thank you so much um, for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed, um, you know, working with you and speaking with you through this. I think a lot of times people think about gun violence and it's such a huge issue. People don't see themselves in the solution. They don't understand what they can do to kind of reduce it. But there's so much we can do together as a community. Um, we can continue to create spaces for young people. Understand that young folks are really, really dealing with the, the you know, the brunt of what's happening. And we have to make sure that we see them. We have to make sure that we hear them. And we definitely need to make sure that we feel them. So continue to give young people space to talk about that trauma, give young people space, ask them questions, um, help them get resources, but just really understand that it's hard. And in every choice that they're making to do something positive, we need to congratulate them at that. Thank you for listening to this episode of Abstain Podcast. Talk to you soon. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight Lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big.